Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of DFV. I am your co-host, Black Cinephile. And I'm your co-host, Brad. That's your co-host, Brad. And on this one, we got a really special one. We got one I've been um, kind of wanting to do for a while. One of these films is a classic I've been meaning to watch for many years. Another one is a film I've seen like a couple of times that is is pretty great in its structure. And on this one, we got a film, we got a showdown of um, different perspectives. Uh, you know, a, a core event happens and we get different perspectives from uh, the people involved or the people who may have witnessed it. And uh, two of the best examples of this type of, uh, you know, format, one, the originator, uh, Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, we got that on one end. On the other end, we got Snake Eyes uh, by Brian De Palma uh, starring the one and only Nick Cage. And uh, yeah, man, I'm really excited for this one because I've always looked at Snake Eyes as kind of like a kind of kind of an homage to Rashomon. But um, mm-hmm. is this your first time seeing either of these? Uh, yeah, this is the first time watching both of these. And I knew about the Rashomon effect, which is, it comes mm-hmm. from this movie, which is where people have different perceptions of the same event. And it, I never knew that it was actually named after the movie. When I saw the name Rashomon, I was like, oh, so they named a movie after, like, that kind of ideology. No, that that ideology originates from this movie. Like, the word Rashomon to take Rashomon effect is actually from this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so many films uh, pay homage to this. You know, um, I want to, I'd argue Snake Eyes does uh, Vantage Point. I don't know if you ever saw that film with Dennis Quaid. Mm-hmm. A few episodes of uh, like famous TV shows, like even some cartoons, like a lot of, a lot of things pay homage to Rashomon. Oh, yeah. Basically, most murder mysteries pay homage to this. This is basically the crust of what makes murder mystery so compelling in some ways, is the way that you can have the story being told from different perspectives and a little bit different on each one, kind of leading to eventually the actual event or what is determined to be the closest to the actual event. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, look, I'm excited to get into it, man. And I think for this one, you know, I know um, going chronological is detestable, but I feel like since this is like the granddaddy of this format, we, we got to go with Rashomon first. I, I'll let you have it this one, but uh, only this once. I got you. I got you. All right. So we got Rashomon in 1950, uh, written and directed by, uh, you know, the legend uh, Kira Kurosawa. So in this film, um, we start off with, uh, you know, three people that are, you know, uh, taking shelter from a uh, rainstorm. We got a woodcutter, a priest, and um, we got a, a, a thief that, uh, you know, uh, you know, pops up. And the woodcutter and the priest are kind of like going over this crazy story that they that they went to a trial for that they just can't wrap their minds around. And um, the well, we're not going to call him a thief yet, but the visitor who's uh, taking shelter with them, says, well, what's, what's the story? What are you talking about? And it revolves around um, it revolves around a man named uh, Tajimaru, um, uh, a husband and a wife. So Tajimaru is a bandit. And, you know, you got a samurai and you got his wife. Samurai and his wife are going through the woods. Tajimaru is also, uh, you know, like taking shelter, not taking shelter, but in the woods at around the same time the samurai and the wife uh come through um a sexual assault happens uh and a duel happens and the samurai ends up dead 
So that's pretty much the core objective facts of what happened. Now, what unfolds from there is like um, different perspectives being told in trial, uh, ranging from um, the woodcutter's perspective, uh, who had uh, witnessed this. Then we have the wife's perspective, who got away. The Sam, I mean, the the bandit's perspective, Tajimaru, who was captured. And um, <laughs> we also have a pretty cool cool section where um, a witch medium tells the story of uh, the samurai uh, from the afterlife. So we got all these perspectives put together and then what is perceived to be the real truth at the end. And uh, that in a nutshell is basically Rashomon. Uh, yeah, that's basically the clear cut of it is the story of the bandit, the samurai and the wife and what actually happened that led to the samurai's death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. So this was my first time seeing this, too. This was always a film I wanted to see because um, I heard it's like it's one of Kurosawa's best. So when I finally saw it, man, you know, in, in the beginning, I was, um, you know, I was I was I was I, I, you got to hook yourself into these older type of movies, because when they get going, they get going. Kind of like when we watched Akiru, um, another film by Kurosawa. But uh, once it got into the perspectives of the story, man, it was just uh, it was just very engaging, dude. I, I just couldn't I just couldn't look away at that point. It, yeah, it definitely. So the way that this movie starts is a little bit with just kind of going, OK, there's some people talking underneath this kind of, you know, village hut and it's raining out and everything. And they start going through the story of like, here's what happened in the courtroom. And uh, the first telling is basically I was walking through and I found a body and it's like, OK, OK. And finally, we have the bandit coming in where somebody, you know, has caught the bandit, brings him into the courtroom and is like, I found him. He like fell off his horse like an idiot and stuff like that. He's like, I am no idiot. I did not fall off my horse. And he starts going into his telling of what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he starts going into his telling. And the way it goes, when we had got to like the... um the second retelling uh, from the, the well, technically the third retelling uh, from the wife, um, you know, by that point, I was kind of like, you know, I mean, how many times can you retell this story? I mean, how nuanced mm -hmm. can it get? You know, I mean, uh, you know, there, there was a sexual assault. They had a duel. Someone died. I mean, is there really much else to tell here? But I like how the film kind of plays with that and goes, no, there's nuances to what happened here. It's not so cut and dry. Mm hmm. Yeah, and well, one thing with it that kind of confuses me is they're clearly trying to figure out who killed the samurai, and that doesn't seem to be up for contention at all. It, it seems to be right. the bandit did it, and but there's still contention over the different conflicting stories of how it came that the bandit did it in order to be like, well, was the murder justified or was it just a slaying or how did it go down in order for us to basically try the bandit for this murder that he even admits he did if i recall correctly in his story uh he yeah, also what, yeah he kind of tries to go like you know uh it was uh self-defense you know what i mean i uh you know i i kind of just threw it in his direction because I yeah. think in his story, he just throws the, throws the sword, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So it, it comes down to that where it's like, okay, so we definitely know that he did it. There's a dead body here. And then 
all the details beyond that are all completely different in all three stories. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the fourth story that we get, which is more assumed to be the rec- the correct telling of it, which during that you kind of understand. Yeah, I get why the other three lied about what happened. This is uh, embarrassing to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, and it's, it's really just about not the what happened, but why? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, what, why, like, why did this happen? So going from that, right. You know, I like the creativity this film takes because I, I really didn't expect to see that, uh, that, that medium that, uh, I, I don't know if I call it a witch, but the, the medium where the sat, the dead samurai is telling his story through her as the film goes on. Cause like, um, you know, like it was it was really a surprising like uh, part of the story because I don't know if it was the woodcutter or the priest that said, no, no, that's not what happened. He uh, said this. It, it was the woodcutter. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. The woodcutter was like, no, the samurai, the only person we got to hear from left is the samurai. And the guy, the visitor is like, well, I can hear from him. He's dead. <laughs> oh, well, you'll see. And then they just got to the medium lady and her voice sounds creepy because it sounds like a dude's voice etched mm-hmm. in with a female voice as he's telling a story. And so, you know, he gives his his side of the story, which is more I want to say is more emotional than factual. Like, I feel like this is kind of stuff he was like feeling while all of this was happening. You could art, you could like debate that because a lot of this up until like the end is like up for interpretation of like, like maybe this is like emotional retellings of the story. Yeah. So because, you know, in the wife's eyes, her husband was like so um, shocked by her, uh, by by her, um, you know, like like falling victim to the um, the bandit, the bandit that he just gives her a deep, dark stare, you know, uh, like <laughs> like Elijah Wood in Sin City when he's tied to the wood and he's just staring at Mickey work as he's being eaten alive. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what that scene reminded me of. And she says, oh, and I slipped and the dagger fell in him. Yeah. I fainted and the dagger fell in. I was like, really? Even I know you're 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 lying. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so I, I like all this, how you got the different people in the trial, but I feel like it really hits home when the um the woodcutter says, No, all right, listen, I saw the whole thing. I didn't just come after it all happened. I I, I saw it. And when he tells what he saw what he saw from like an objective perspective, it um it it unfolds in a more nuanced way. Like, you know, the wife is a bit more angry, not just because of what happened, but just because she's just fed up with her husband and the bandit saying, look, uh, if you're going to fight over me, then fight over me like men. Don't just try to say, oh, she ain't worth it. Oh, uh, you know, uh, I had you already, so I'm just going to go on now. He says, no, if you want to be a man and have me, then fight for me. You know, men who fight passionately deserve the prize or something like that. And then when they start fighting, they they don't even fight like professionals. Like they start like swiping at air when when they start fighting. Like like both. Well, they the first samurai. run away from each other in opposite directions, and then they right. notice the other running, and they go, "Oh, I can totally take this guy." Then, and they start coming at each other and just fighting each other five feet apart from each other. Right. And I don't think this was staging at all. I think this was supposed to be an ironic point. Like, mm-hmm. like the, the fight was not as dramatic as uh, the bandit said. Like, oh, he went 20 swipes with me. And, you know, I don't, not many men can go 20 swipes with me. It's like, this, this wasn't 20 swipes. Yeah, this, 
this this was embarrassing to say the least. And yeah, I love how like the reasoning for each story for how they came to be fighting was because in the bandits telling of it, he was like getting ready to leave. And the wife was like, no, now that, you know, I've been with two men, I cannot allow both of them to live. So you must either kill yourself or kill my husband. And, you know, that's how the fight starts there in the wife's telling of it, you know, his, her husband is so dismayed with her and everything like that, that he just doesn't want to go on anymore. And then in the samurai's retelling of it through the medium, he it is the bandit going, you know, look, now that your wife has, uh, you know, been tainted, I, I will kill her for you. And he's like, oh, I can forgive him for his deeds since he's willing to get rid of my now, you know, sullen wife. Right, and right. Like, the tellings of it is just so insane. And then the woodcutter just comes in and goes, no, 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 that's not how it happened. The bandit was literally crying to the woman in order to get her to come with him instead of with her husband. She said that I cannot be with somebody outside of my husband as long as he is still around. And then they both very much did, like, a playground sword fight in order to... <laughs> get uh the lady who ran away while they were fighting <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it, it, it's ironic it's ironic how this all this whole thing finally uh really went down um it's mundane but it's kind of like it's it's kind of like an answer staring you in the face like well of course that's how that happened mm-hmm. why why couldn't i have seen that from the beginning this wasn't as dramatic as everyone else made it it, it happened like this and I like how in the end, I think the priest is one of the most interesting characters in this film because the priest the whole time is like, this this story has made me lose all hope in humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I've lost all hope in man because of this story. And then there's a, um, I like how in the in the epilogue, right, after the truth has been revealed, there's a baby that was, um you know, that, that's, that's been left behind, covered with the uh, amulet um, uh, cloak of sorts. You know, kind of like to 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 keep the baby warm. So the visitor goes over and steals the cloak, and then the woodcutter is like, "Hey, how dare you? That belongs to the baby. That belongs to keep it warm." Oh, how do you judge me when you've been lying this whole time? You know, you're no better than me as you're no better a liar as me am a th- a thief. And they have this 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 long uh you know uh, back and forth with each other. So the visitor goes off, and I like how in the end, I feel like this is what brings this this film to a perfect circle. Um, the woodcutter offers to take the baby from the priest, and the priest is like, "No, I don't, I don't trust anybody after this this story I heard. I, I trust no one with this baby." And then the woodcutter goes like, "No, I've 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 raised a few kids of my own. I I can take care of the baby. Trust me." Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a glimmer of hope in the end that I feel like there's a hope in mankind after this um, story of murder. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to say revenge, but murder, assault, uh, you know, went wrong. Well, a story of murder and assault that can make you lose your faith in humanity. I feel like the film brings it full circle to not a happy ending, but a fair ending. Right. Uh, I mean, except for the wife, the, the wife is, she literally was forcibly assaulted and then her husband killed, you know? So, well, She's still, well, I mean, like having a pretty mm-hmm. bad time. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a silver lining in the theme of the movie. Oh, okay. You know gotcha. what I mean? Like we, we, when you're looking at it from the pre standpoint of like, dude, I just I don't have faith in anyone anymore. Like I'm starting to question my own faith because of this story here. You know, there's a glimmer of hope with the woodcutter being able to raise the baby that was left behind. Oh, okay. Yeah, and to my recollection, the baby kind of just shows up there at the end. It wasn't like alluded to have been there at all throughout the rest of the story, right? No, no. Okay. See, the ba- the baby just doesn't start crying until the end. They didn't know there was a baby there. Oh, okay. Because I know that they were staying there to keep out of the rain and everything like that, and that's right. where they're kind of like talking with just the bystander that happens to come by. But uh, yeah, it. I gotta say though, man, this movie in its simplicity, it, it takes full advantage of that because mm-hmm. we really only have three players that you had to keep watch of in this, and that's right. the bandit, the wife, and the samurai. You know, you have the woodcutter, but he basically is just there to tell the story. You have the priest who's really there to listen to the story. The bystander really is there just kind of as a way to retell everything that happened in the courtroom. Uh, We don't even see anybody else really in the courtroom outside of the person that caught the bandit who just goes, hey, I found the bandit. And then the medium who's there to tell the samurai story. It's a very simple cast, which makes it very easy to follow the story as it's going on. Mm hmm. Yeah, like, you know, um, Kurosawa has even talked about that himself. He says, like, I mean, making this simple, making the story so simple gave me, like, the freedom to make it as complex as I could, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Being so limited gave him, like, possibilities on how you can make a limited story so complex, how you can dice it in so many ways. Right. I feel like the main selling point of this movie is the theme of, like, you know, humanity and having faith in humanity. Because through every story everyone tells, everyone tells their emotional side of what happened. Um, But as far as like when the objective truth is told, I mean, you can't really beat the truth, but you could tell you could see some you could see some truth in every story that everyone told from the bandit to the wife to the samurai through the medium. There was some truth in each story. It's just that it it, it all like like when it when it all comes together in the end. Like, uh, there was just some truth. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, each one of the tellings was not, like, a lie. It basically was just their perception of what happened while trying to save their face in the story. Uh, But I will still say, I respect the bandit for still being like, yeah, look, I saw these people, and I was like, I'm gonna kill that guy, and I'm gonna take his girl. (laughs) And even in his telling of the story, that's what he does. It's not like he lies and goes, no, I was innocent in this whole thing. Well, he kind of does stre- he kind of does stretch and say, oh, she was like an angel coming through the forest when I was just sleeping. Oh, then yeah. And just goes to like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna just kill him and take the girl. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so even with him, there was a romantic there was a ro- ro- romanticism of, of what happened. A little bit, but at the same time, at the very least, he didn't, like, lie and try and, like, go, oh, I had nothing to do with any of this. It's, you know, I was just a simple bystander. Hmm. I I don't know. I kind of debate that. I feel like he tried to make himself out like that, saying that he was just resting in the forest and these people came into his life and made him do something bad. I feel like that's kind of how he how he how he pitched it in court in the beginning of his story. But maybe that was just me. Yeah, I, I didn't quite get that. I kind of more got it as like he's 
telling this badass tale of how he killed a dude and then stole his wife, but the wife ended up getting away from him somehow. <laughs> hmm. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, wrapping it up here, dude, I, I see why this film is a classic. Uh, it took me a little bit to get on this wavelength, but um, I think it's a, I, I think it's a film that's a, that unfolds very well, even for its time, and has a good pacing to it. Mm-hmm. I give this I give it a strong four point five. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It's a four point five out of five. It's great characters, great storytelling, great pacing. It's a complicated story, but it is very easy to follow due to the fact that you're basically just following three main characters. And getting to see like the way that the story unfolds from the different perspectives of these characters before getting like the real one, you know, it and that fourth one is just so hilarious to watch after everything else that we've been given throughout the movie of just being like, oh, yeah, neither of them could fight whatsoever. They they were both puffing chest the entire time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I think it was a very solid watch. That brings us to our next movie here, The Snake Eyes from 1998. Uh, starring Nicolas Cage, we follow him as Detective Rick Santoro, who is a Atlantic police officer who gets caught up in the entire scheme being brought about during a fight that is happening in his local city. And being a sleazy cop, he is, of course, there to bet on the fight and kind of make some money and everything like that. In the process, he meets up with an old friend of his, Kevin Dune, who invites him to front row seats at the fight, who is there to protect the Secretary of Defense, who is very enthralled with seeing the fight himself. But after a series of events occurs, the Secretary of Defense is shot, and it becomes a mystery of who done it. And why did this all go down exactly how it did with, you know, Detective Rick Santoro in the center of it, trying to decipher everything he can from the clues left behind. And that is like the bare bones of this movie, because, man, once we start getting into the meat of this, it it gets pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I remember when I first well, when I first saw this film, I I barely knew what was going on because I was a kid. I think my mom rented it mm-hmm. on a DVD because, um, you know, this is a 1998 film here. So, you know, I barely remembered it. I remembered the ending, you know, and I remembered a little bit of the beginning, but I, I didn't remember much of the film. So revisiting it like a few years ago, I said, oh, OK, that's what this film is. It's, it's kind of a like, you know, multiple perspective story. And then seeing it again freshly, you know, uh, recently, I was like, dude, the way De Palma directed this film, bravo, man, because the camera is moving so much without even cutting. You you don't even realize it. It's like a free flowing narrative as you're following, you know, uh, Ricky around saying hi to everybody. Like so that coupled with Nicolas Cage and his element, you know, flamboyant, you know, outgoing. You know, like, like, uh, like, uh, go Tyler, go Tyler, go. Yeah, very much just an eccentric fool, more or less. Right, right. flashy, corrupt, you know, just like the worst detective you want to uh, uh, sit with. You know, he'll do you a favor, 
but not without you doing something for him first. Mm. But I like how the camera just follows Cage and you're not even noticing that we haven't cut yet. And he's saying hi to everybody. He's trying to get a a, a look at the the boxer, the, the the champ, and they're trying to keep him away. And then it's funny because all this stuff that's happening now, you need to pay attention to later when we see it from another character's perspective. And I just I just love the way the film weaves through that as it goes along. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one shot, It I think it was when he was going down the escalator that I mm-hmm. clued in. I was like, there hasn't been a cut in a while. And exactly. And it kept going for a while still with him talking with the, what was it, the one person that owed him money. Then he runs mm. into his bookie again. Then he's going down and he sees like all the people coming around and everything. And yeah, it, it goes on for a while. It's like, that's a very clean one shot. And yeah. especially with so much dialogue and so much going on in it too. It's not like it's an action scene. There's dialogue, there's cues in it. And there's all these different elements. It's like, that's gotta be a tricky one to pull off. And I 100% mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it's awesome. Um, yeah, and it, and it has like the signature kind of De Palma look too. So if you watch his films, like, you know, we could say the obvious, like Scarface, The Untouchables. But if you go like in the, the B-sides with like Dress to Kill and stuff like that, you know, he, he likes to follow around with the camera and be a voyeur kind of. That's mm-hmm. kind of like his thing. Uh, so we got certain shots that have that kind of voyeuristic style and have kind of like that film noirish style. But uh, I, I love how there's like little details in the moments, like when um, uh, when uh, the the main character, you know, uh, finally gets not the main character, but when the um, when the when the target gets shot, the secretary of defense. Yes. You know, Rick gets a call saying, hey, it's number seven. He goes, who's number seven? And then you, if you pay attention in the movie, you realize number seven was like the one girl with the sign he was talking to. Saying, hey, you know, give me a call. I'll help you get a better gig than this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's like you're not following that at the moment because you're like, what the like, what the hell? Somebody just got shot. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, the film plays with you in, in that aspect. And I think like that's pretty cool. And I love how, you know, Gary Sinise. Well, before we even get there, let's just get the obvious out the way. This film, like, you know, it doesn't hide its hand. It, it tells you who he tells you who's involved with this almost from the beginning. Mm hmm. Yeah, it kind of, especially during the moment where the shot happens, you see everything from Rick's point of view. And as he's looking around and everything like that, you see the woman with her wig fall off and everything like that. He looks to the Mm -hmm. ring and he sees that the fighter is like looking around panicked and everything when he's supposed to be knocked out. And Mm -hmm. he like looks up, he sees where the shooter was and everything. You have uh, Kevin coming back and everything like that at that moment. So, yeah, it it kind of it's one of those ones where it kind of plays around with going, look, you saw everything that happened. Now we're going to just present it in every way possible until we get to the actual conclusion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, because it's not again like uh, Rashomon. It's not a matter of what happened or who did it. It's why. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So and how I it went it. down. How it went down, of course. There's that, too. So Gary Sinise, man, uh, <laughs> I, I love this running joke that almost every time you see Gary Sinise in a movie and he has like a, a little smirk on his face, you know he's the bad guy. <laughs> like, not entirely you know, wrong. <laughs> yeah, like 
you know, outside of Forrest Gump and uh, I don't know, Mission to Mars or something. But, you know, he's the bad guy in the movie. Uh, but I, I love how he's like so in comparison to like um, Lincoln. Right. I mean, in comparison to Rick, you know, um, Kevin is kind of like the straight laced guy. Right. He's a commander. You know, Rick mm-hmm. is a detective. Uh, Rick is corrupt. Kevin is straight laced. You know, Rick is uh, a cheater. Kevin is, you know, I, I assume faithful if he has somebody. But, you know, um, they're, they're, they're two different guys, but they're child, they're friends. I don't mm-hmm. want to say childhood friends, but they're friends. Um, so I love the dynamic between these two. I love how it's up to the corrupt character to bring justice in the end. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely a nice play on the role reversal there, especially as we're like getting into it. And I think we should just jump into some of the spoilers here with it being, yeah, go ahead. you know, uh, with the fact that it was Kevin that was the ringleader of a lot of this operation and everything like that. It mm-hmm. comes down to when Kevin is finding out that Rick's getting himself involved. He's like, yeah, he's not a threat. He's crooked. We just got to figure out what his number is to pay him off. And we're in the gold. You know, there's no mm-hmm. worries here. And... Obviously, we have Rick who's, you know, being like, look, I have very unset morals, but at the same time, there is a line and this has crossed it. Right. You know, absolutely. He even mentions at one point, I've, but, you know, I might be corrupt at times, but I've never killed somebody, you know, or mm-hmm. I've never gotten somebody killed. Yeah, absolutely. That. It, there's there's that fine line of uh, morality. Well, there's that there's that not so fine line of morality. Like, what is everyone's limit? And mm-hmm. it's, it's it's evident that Rick's limit is straight up murder. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, you want to pay off a uh, you know a prostitute or something, or you want to you know make something go away as far as like a scandal or whatever. Fine, but taking someone's life, he goes like, dude, I didn't sign up for this. Right. Yeah, because, you know, he, he's crooked with his bets and everything like that. Like, we have the right. conversation he has with the bookie where it's like, look, I'm not letting you put 5000 on this bet until you have cash, because last time I let you put even 1000 down, it took you a year to pay me back. <laughs> right, right, right. And then, yeah. yeah, with him literally just shaking down a criminal that he let get by with something else. And he was like, look, I know you got money. Just give it up, man. This is all I want. And then he literally just pays it right to his bookie, except for the dollar that had blood on it, because I'm not taking that. It's covered in blood. <laughs> right, right. Again, uh, shaky morals. Right, yeah. I'm not going to take money covered in blood. What's the matter with you? Right. Yeah, man, I got to say, man, uh, Carla Gugino in this film is Julia. You know, she's just terrific, man, because you're trying to wonder what her angle in all of this is as well as the film goes on, mm-hmm. you know, because like, you know, you want to go, OK, what 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 is she trying to do here? Why was she trying to speak to the uh, uh, defense secretary? You know what I mean? So when you're when you're going over all these characters here and, um, you know, what's what's uh, what, what what's the main deal? You gotta you gotta love it because like the film like plays with it in so many ways. And I um I wanna say I love the scene where Kevin tells his quote unquote story and then um he he meets the girl, Serena, that was meant to like quote unquote distract him. Mm-hmm. And then uh when when the when the sniper bullet goes out, he shoots the guy in the booth. And it's so it's so clean cut, you don't even notice it. You think he's just shooting at random stuff, but then you see the bullet holes in the in the booth, 
you go, oh, man, I like the way they shot that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And even as like the different tellings of it and a little bit more information come along, when you realize, oh, the girl in the red dress was there to get him to move and everything like that, and to get him out of that position as a cover story for him to be able to use. So he'd be right there where the shooter was in order to help him get into place. But the shooter didn't know that this was a suicide mission. He thought his job right. was make the shot and then come out and then he'd be there to cover for him and then they'd run off. Instead, it was, okay, so the lady comes, brings me there, and that's how I can be in place that way, when he starts shooting, I can kill him so I can keep my alibi straight. And she's aware that that's a part of it. And then you have the other guy that's in like the crowd that was supposed to give the signal for everything. Like the amount of players in this that it slowly like gives us all the information that we're looking for for this mystery. It's done so well and like giving us those little bits of going, oh, yeah, there was that guy in the crowd. He did, like, stand up and say something, and then that's when a bunch of stuff went down, you know? So he was the guy that gave the cue to have everything go down. And then, you know, when Rick goes in and he's, like, watching the video to try and, like, catch the person that uh, fired and everything like that to, like, see who it was that did that, he catches that the boxing match was being fixed because he like threw on a false punch for the match and got knocked Mm -hmm. out. And he's like, wait, I remember he wasn't knocked out. He was like looking around as soon as the gunshots went out. So he goes to talk to him. Right. So he starts going to talk to him and figure out, Hey, you know, you threw the game, man. But uh, more importantly, why is it that when you threw the game, somebody got shot immediately after? What's going on? What? How are you involved? And hearing his side of the story and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the details and the perspectives are great. And um, I want to say, uh, you know, Cage is a hundred percent Cage in this. Like, oh, through yeah. the over the through the over the top moments and the serious moments. Like, and I love how his subtle line delivery. Like when Kevin's telling his quote unquote story. Like, man, I feel so bad because I got distracted. And he's like, uh, hey, man, you uh, you saw a hot woman. You got a boner. Congratulations. You're human. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And the way he says it, it's just like, it's just so funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because uh, he's totally selling his character. But I just love the scene where he confronts Kevin. And Kevin's like, like, dude, listen, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're... You're you're Rick, dude. You can go to the next level with something like this if you just like let this brush off and like just sweep it under the rug. And Rick looks so hurt because he's like, this is a guy I looked up to. You know, he's a commander. He's the he's what I should be in my role as detective. And he's just like he's showing himself to be someone that's like more crooked than I am at this moment. Yeah. Well, not even just more crooked. Somebody that's willing to cross the lines that even he sees as like a bold do not cross kind of line. Yeah. 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 I, absolutely. And I feel like that's what makes this film so strong because it, it reverses. I know Brian De Palma was interested in like reversing the police procedural of, um, you know, like, uh, oh, it's a who done it. Who's responsible? They know they revealed pretty early on that it's Kevin that was behind this. And he liked the relationship between the two of them where, you know, 
like there's this one guy who's been friends with this other guy that's who he wants to be that he's just hurt and just like you know disillusioned that his his friend would cross the line um you know so deeply with something like this yeah yeah and basically like we haven't even gotten to everything with uh rick and julia and how that all right. goes down because there's a yeah, point yeah. in the movie where rick kind of goes okay i'm not worried about you know other details right now i gotta find out who this woman is and why she wanted to talk to the secretary of defense right before he got shot you know what's her involvement in all of this and is she in danger as well because she he initially brings her to the ground to protect her after shots start firing and then she wanders off and eventually tracks her down to the casino gets her and everything like that which i love the uh the what would the cameo by uh i i just think newman i'm trying to remember what his actual name is newman newman from uh from seinfeld <laughs> right yeah but uh yeah. the cameo from him as the guy that owns the or has the hotel room that they go to and everything like that. His scene is hilarious. I absolutely loved how he pops into the movie and is there for a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it definitely goes to show that uh, when Rick is talking with her and being like, Hey, I need information. Like what were you saying to him? And she starts going into the details about the tests that were rigged and everything that's going on that, you know, is going to put people's lives at risk. And that's where he starts piecing together. Oh, Kevin might be more involved in this than I originally thought. Mm. And that's when he goes back down and he starts like going, what camera angles do we have that I can see Kevin at? And that's when he finds out about the little like eye camera blimp. And it has the perfect angle of showing that, you know, before the firing even happened, Kevin already had his gun pointed at the guy ready to shoot him as soon as he was firing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, going from that, I, I love the whole chase between, um, you know, Kevin trying to hunt down Julia and uh, just like the tension in that moment where, um, you know, we you know, were following her and they were following him. And then I think he sees some people. There was a moment in the hallway where he was like, oh, you know what? That guy left with that chick down there. Oh, where did they go? You know, like he this guy is on a mission to to get this woman because she's a uh, she's she's a she's a loose um, a loose thread is what they would call it or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I, I thought that was pretty cool too. Like the film, even though you know what happened and who did it, it still rack, it still racks up the tension because you 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 still got the person who did it walking around, while the person who's trying to figure out who did it, you know, is still trying to rack his brain of like what what the heck is going on here. It, basically, because yeah, it, it. I mean, one thing it definitely does such a good job at literally giving us the small amount of details to kind of let us catch up to the movie instead of being like, oh, here's a whole new perspective on it. It just goes, well, here's a little bit more information. Like, nobody here has the full picture at all. Everybody just has little bits and pieces of the full picture. Because mm -hmm. the boxer just knows that somebody told him that he has to throw the fight 
in the last round, but he has to wait for the cue from this one guy before he's allowed to do it. And then you have like Julia where she wants to just talk with the secretary of defense and is just waiting for an opportunity for, you know, Kevin and his security detail to move. And obviously you have Rick who is just there for the fight, but literally sees everything happen without realizing how much he's actually seen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it, it plays with you, man. And uh, so what did you, let me ask you this. What did you feel about the final showdown? Cause I felt like some of it was a little like contrived, like with the hurricane coming, which, you know, that was, that was built up well, but I felt like everything being like the perfect storm in the end. I, I don't know. I don't know how I felt about it. What, what about, what about you? Um, I kind of had to agree on it. The fact that like the police car ended up barraging right through the perfect doors due to the ball falling off of the stadium and blocking the road and the hurricane coming in. And because everything kind of leading up to that point was very well done with, you know, Rick trying to get back to her and Kevin's following him and, you know, Rick's beaten up and bloodied and everything like that. And he's basically just right. being like it, the one time that he's trying to be a hero and he's doing his damnedest to, you know, make sure that she's safe and he, he's not doing a very good job at it. You know, it shows that he, his heart's in the right place, but the one time that he's actually trying to do the right thing, it's difficult for him to be able to do it still. You know, it's still a challenge mm. for him. And it just goes to show like how evil Kevin is and how like much he wants this to happen where, it, you know, it, this is his best friend that he's watching and mm. basically forcing to do something that is completely beyond what he wants to do. And we got to uh, <laughs> we got to talk about the great line that Cage has He's like, you yeah, sorry, Kevin, you got snake eyes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's the title of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I did like the family guy moment of oh, he said the name of the movie. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like the ending, you know, I, I feel like his his um, Kevin's demise is is well thought out because, you know, he's exposed. You know, he's he's this upstanding individual that's exposed for being like, you know, um, not so upstanding and being just as corrupt as, uh, you know, Rick is or being like corrupt like Rick is. And, he, you know, commits suicide because he's like he can't stand that kind of shame. I feel like that's that's well thought out. That's earned. I just feel like the perfect storm thing was kind of like, all right, we're at the end of the movie here. So we got to figure out something. Right. Yeah. It. I mean, even then we have like the after all that where we see uh Rick Which kind I don't of, mind. Yeah, I, I kinda liked it where everybody's finding out like where Rick's hailed as a hero. He's he's saved right. the day. He everything and but then all his like corrupt dealings start coming out and he mm-hmm. has to deal with the consequences of that because now he's in the spotlight. And everybody was like, Oh, I can turn in my points for knowing, you know, all these bad deeds that our hero of the day has committed. It's kind of like right. when somebody like goes uh, and does something and they like go viral on TikTok or on Twitter. And all of a sudden yeah, everybody's they- like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He used to, you know, kick puppies into the river when he was in middle school. Everybody's like, what do you, you- mean? 
you, you made this post in 2012 that was uh, uh, demoralizing. Right, yeah. I was like, it's like, dude, I was 15. Like, you know, like, right. but uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I love how that, that gets tied into when I think Gary Sinise's character says to him, like, you know, you want to be the hero and, and out me fine, but you don't think all your stuff is going to come back out and mm-hmm. you're, you're going to get exposed? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, overall, though, I, I can't think of anything else in this movie to really talk about. But, yeah, is there well, anything else that you have? Well, I was going to say uh, another thing about Brian De Palma's long shots. Uh, you know, during the credits, they they keep zooming in to the um, I think it was the reconstruction of the casino. And then you see the ring that was on Serena's finger at the end being zoomed into. And then it, it ends. I don't know if you sticked around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I caught yeah, that. Well, it's, a, it's a nice shot. Yeah, I thought that was a great final shot. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, I got a nice little Easter egg. Uh, but other than that, man, dude, I just feel like um, when I watched this film with fresh eyes recently, I, I loved it, man. You know, when you got Nicolas Cage, you know, at, at full cage mode, you got Brian De Palma, who's a, who's a master of the thriller cinema. Um, Gary Sinise, you know, Carla Gugino, John Hurd, some great actors here, man. You know, you you got dynamite. This film had mixed reviews when it first came out. And I can tell it's not for everybody, but I feel like looking back on it today, you know, like great thrillers like this are like like very missed. And uh I, I gotta I gotta stick with the same rating, man. I give this a strong four point five. Uh yeah, I would you know what? This one I think is a five to me. It, everything hmm. with it just falls into place very perfectly. The way that we're introduced to new information is done very well. Nick Cage is his perfect Nick Cage self. You know, mm-hmm. it, this is like, I wouldn't say one of his top performances, but this is one of those ones where it's like, yeah, that's full on Nick Cage. I, nobody else honorable could have pulled the same thing. Yeah, honorable mention for sure. And yeah. it, the thrilling part of it, to the mystery of it, I think everything falls into place very well with this one. You know, I, I can't think of any complaints that I have with it. I The only complaint I have is like the, the perfect storm ending. I feel like it's just like, you know, it's like, we okay, we're getting to the epilogue here. We got to wrap this up. I don't know. I just felt like some of that was kind of like, like a little too contrived for me. It, it was a little me. contrived, but at the same time, yeah. it didn't bother me. It, it was kind of like, yeah, of course. Okay, whatever. But everything else kind of fell into place so well that it's like, okay, that might not have been something I liked about it, but it's not something that brought it down to me. I understand. I understand completely. Um, yeah, man, this is hard, man. So I, I take it you're you're on the side of Snake Eyes winning this out. Uh, yeah. Well, when it comes to the fact that Rashomon is basically the forefather of it. It does such a great job with it. But yeah, when it comes to being like a more entertaining movie and one that, you know, I'd recommend people to watch and everything. Snake Eyes, I think, is the one that I would be throwing out there more as like a, hey, check this movie out. See, I just I think I love the simplicity of Rashomon and how it makes something so simple, complex. I I give a slight, slight edge to Rashomon on this one. Yeah, I can see it, though. It's, it absolutely yeah. is fantastic. All righty. So now let's get to the fun topics of uh, the after show here. 
Um, all right, man. So I know last time we spoke, you said you watched the finale of Ashoka. You watched the finale of Fiona and Cake. Uh, so what what else has been going on, man? You watching any other movies? Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to catch any other movies right now. We're still in this weird, like, dead spot for, like, new releases and everything that I haven't really mm. seen anything. Nothing's caught my eye as, like, a movie that I need to watch. And... But the new Marvel series Loki season two has started, so of course I caught yeah. that. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I've I've, I've heard. Uh, how, how could I not hear about that when that yeah. dropped? I saw <laughs> commercials everywhere. Um, yeah. So, any any thoughts on that so far? As you watching that? Uh it's a good start. I, I will say that for being one of my favorite Marvel series so far. It, going into season two, it, it's a good start. I, I'm enjoying it, and I'm really curious to see where it's going to all go. Because it is one of the bigger like mysteries of shows of like where is this going? Because it plays with timelines, it plays with you know time itself, you know past, present, future, and it, there's really no limits that this one can take. Okay. Okay. All right, I'll, hey, listen. I'll uh, I'll take your word for it. It sounds it sounds uh it sounds good. You know me, man. I I, I drifted off somewhere at the end of uh, WandaVision, man. <laughs> I I got a lot of catching up to do. Listen, I just got it, it. became too much to me. I was like, you know what? It'll still be there when I'm when I'm ready to watch it. Ain't nothing going to happen. <laughs> you, you don't think that there. Disney's gonna start canceling the MCU and <laughs> rolling back all their uh, shows? It can be. It'll it'll be able to be found on the internet. It ain't going nowhere. It ain't going nowhere. I I I'll eventually get into it. I really I really was tempted to watch Secret Invasion because I wanted to see the first, well, not the first series that Samuel Jackson led in because there was the the last days of Ptolemy Gray before that. But like I wanted to see Samuel Jackson in a leading role in a Marvel series. But mm-hmm. you know I kind of I kind of you know got distracted on that one too. But um, I wanted to say, you know, and we got a new review up on 8-Bit Waffles, you know, written by yours truly. Uh, check out Fair Play on Netflix, man. That yeah, one, so what's it a, about? So this is a new film with uh, Phoebe Dynavor from uh, Bridg- Bridgerton. I hope I'm saying her name right. And Alden uh, Ironreich from, uh, you know, Solo. Uh, good movie, man. So it's about a young couple who work at this uh, cutthroat, you know, hedge fund firm. Um, they're a couple, but they haven't disclosed to anybody or HR that they're a couple yet. And following like an unexpected promotion, things get tense between them. Uh, things get very tense, competitive, and, uh, it, it gets really, uh, unpredictable. And, um, you know, it, it gets, it gets intense as the film goes along. I recommend it, man. I feel like it was, uh, one of the better, more, uh, independent films I've seen of this year. Okay. And that one's streaming on Netflix now or... Yeah, it's on Netflix now. Okay. I might have to check that out when I subscribe next month. Right, yeah, I know. The big day's coming up for you, right? The Scott Pilgrim Day. It's it's nearly a month away. You know, I'm, I'm counting down the seconds. So let me ask you this, man. So so I know you love the movie. So did you did you start off loving... Um, it, it came from a, man- a, a manga, right? Uh, from a graphic novel. So it uh, started off as just a black and white graphic novel from uh, Brian Lee O'Malley. 
And yeah, eventually a copy of it made it over to Universal. They picked it up from the movie rights and they asked Edgar Wright if he would want to direct it and everything like that. And that's how the movie got made. But my introduction to it was the first novel somebody had given to me as a gift. So Mm. I read it and I was like, this is good. And then somebody was like, yeah, there's a movie out for it. And I was like, oh, when that come out? And they were like, last year. And I was like, oh, okay. So I picked it up on Blu-ray and I watched the movie. And then I went back and read the rest of the books after that. And mm. that was my introduction to it all. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So so what about, and well, well, we'll touch on this in the episode. I was going to say, what about the character of Scott Pilgrim do you love? But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Um. Yeah, man, I um I, I saw the movie and I, I liked the movie. I think I saw it in college. Uh I forgot what the week was or what we were studying, but we saw it in film class. And uh, you know, I can understand how that's a a cult classic. You know, I oh, yeah. it's it's got a lot of got a lot of things about it to love and um, you know, I'm looking forward to revisiting it. But um other than that, man, you know, I feel like it has been kind of a quiet, quiet season. You know, you could say it's because of the actor's strike. You know, the writer's strike just ended. But um, I feel like, do you think things are going to, like, pop back up into season until, like, 2024? Or See, that's the strange thing is, right now, it seems that theater releases, if you look up theater releases, a lot of stuff got pushed back or it mm-hmm. got, like, moved to a streaming release and everything like that. And streaming releases still have some stuff coming up. You know, because like Amazon, we have the burial coming up and everything. Uh, we have yeah. like Netflix has the Chicken Run sequel, which is a movie that I am going to be super excited to watch. That is something I never asked for <laughs> at the same time. But it. it's like there's a lot coming out for streaming right now. But in terms of theaters, like I'm looking at upcoming movies in the theaters, and it's like, okay, we got a new Marvel movie coming, we have new Aquaman coming, but it, you know, there's the new Taylor Swift Experience coming, and you know, like outside of that, what what's coming to theaters? Like nothing is catching my eyes at all. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I gotta agree with that, man. You know, because usually you would be able to see down the line what's coming. I mean, besides a few Canes Film Festival award winners, there ain't there ain't much to be looking forward to. Um, ever since you know Doom got pushed back, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm I'm still a little upset about. I was really looking forward to Doom, but you know, yeah, ain't ain't much coming out, man. I mean, there's some good independent films coming, but yeah, outside of the new Saw, there there isn't really much I want to see. Yeah, which even speaking on that, like. Normally, October is filled with like a bunch of like horror movie releases and stuff like that, where you're like, oh, like every week is combating to be like the prime horror movie. This year, Saw is all I've heard about. Like, I'm not big into like the horror movie space, but I normally still hear about what's coming out in that kind of like genre. I was going to say there's also the new Exorcist that came out. I, Which I heard is oh, uh, see, bad. the only thing that I heard about that was don't see it. <laughs> yeah, I heard that was bad, dude. Um, but isn't uh, that a new yeah. picture deal too? Like they spent, I don't like a quarter of 
$250 million, like a quarter of a billion dollars to get the franchise. And this was like the first of like three movies. And it's just tanking at the box office already. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I you might be right that it's tanking. But uh, but yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've heard that it's just it's bad. Like I've heard reviews saying it's not good. And if it's tanking, that makes it even worse. Which sucks because William Freakin just recently passed away, too. And that's one of his most well-known movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, at some point, you got to stop with the gimmicks. Like, when David Gordon Green came back to reboot Halloween, the first one in Halloween Ends was pretty solid. I didn't like Halloween Kills, so I didn't like the second one. But two out of three of those rebooted films were, were good. Then he came back saying, we're going to reboot The Exorcist. I'm like, all right, we don't... All right, listen, Michael Myers is fine, but Exorcist, I mean, don't we have enough of the devil maybe do it type of movies? Yeah. Do we really need to bring that back? And it's like, you know, next you're going to say, oh, yeah, next we're going to reboot Freddy, and next we're going to, no, stop, leave it alone. I mean, they already rebooted Chucky with uh, Mark Hamill voicing him. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but that didn't travel. I know. That, that, that That was a one and done. And then they came back with the series and redeemed it with uh, Brad Dorff voicing them again. So that that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, like, it, especially with horror, now that we're actually like talking about, man, th- there hasn't been like a new horror franchise in a while. It's all just been reboots and recashings of the same thing. Saw, Paranormal Activity, The Exorcist, Chucky, wow. you know, Halloween Kill. <laughs> There's the nun. Which is a you know a, a rip or there's a there's the nun and then there's uh uh the conjuring which is you know okay. where the nun comes from the conjuring you know. okay <laughs> I mean look I'm just being honest like people yeah. they look at that as a franchise they go see those movies but oh yeah. yeah I hear what you're saying I mean I think like it's just like people are tired of the same old thing like like paranormal activity was great when it first dropped it was great found footage horror but it's like you can only push that bill so far. Whereas, like, you know, what what's a real franchise? You know, who's really scared of Annabelle? Mm-hmm. You know, Chucky is funny. Annabelle's not funny. She doesn't even talk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I'm just disappointed that Paranormal Activity didn't get to the point that we were watching it from the perspective, like a camera on a dog's leash or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like the entire movie, just from a dog's perspective, walking around the house. You know, because that's eventually where it would have gotten to because they already did security system. They did like the Xbox Connect as one of them. If I recall, they did like the outdoor cameras. They did the uh, GoPro at one point, if I recall correctly. Like they they did everything that they could from a camera perspective for that franchise. I I was just waiting for the cat collar cam. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um. Yeah, you can only push something so far. Like I feel like Saw, like like one one franchise I think will never go out of style is Final Destination. I mm-hmm. mean, you you just can't beat death. I feel like yeah. that's just such a genius idea for a villain. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see, man. We'll we'll see what's gonna happen. Um, all right, y'all. It's been a great episode. Take care. Um, you know, remember to you know watch movies, love movies, and uh, have a great one.